if you're new with us, welcome uh, to, to this, this gathering of Outfitter Church. My name is Tyler. I'm the lead pastor of this church. And um, every single week, I, it's growing more and more. I, I just cannot wait to get back here with you. Um, I, I know that what the Lord has taught me through the Word, through the preparing to preach, uh, and, I'm, and I'm excited to bring it to you, uh, but more than that, uh, and included with that, I'm just so excited to get to worship with my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And so, um, if you're new here and you're, or you're just visiting, whether you came here to exalt the Lord with us, welcome, or whether you came here to explore this whole Jesus thing, uh, we're going to introduce you to Him today, and you have a choice to follow him uh, and, and experience true life and forgiveness of sins. And so I'm, I'm super glad that you're here. Uh, I want to start by telling a story. I'm reading a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Um, and so this book is, is two Navy SEALs uh, that served together in Iraq uh, and they're writing a book about leadership principles. Uh, and I wanted to tell you this story in chapter one of the book. In chapter 1, he tells this story. Uh, he's, he's operating in, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the city, but Ramadi. Uh, and he said at the time it was one of the, the, one of the most dangerous areas in Iraq to be uh, fighting in the war. Uh, this was probably about 20 years ago when he was uh, there. So anyways, he tells this story, and he is, uh, forgive me, we've got a couple military folks, so forgive me uh, for not having the right terms, but he is the head of his SEAL team unit called Task unit bruiser. And so he's the top dog in that. Now he's still got higher ups out there with him, but he is in charge of every operation, every aspect of it. And so he's got a SEAL team, he's got a sniper team out uh, hidden, doing some work, and then he knows that he's got some army foot soldiers that are working with Iraqi army as well that's with them, uh, clearing areas, just going house by house, clearing out, making sure there's no military age males there. And so he knows he's, he's in charge of two teams. He's got two sniper teams, and he's got these army soldiers going through, yada, yada, yada. And, and he starts getting some chatter over the radio that his sniper team has been ambushed. Then he gets some uh, radio activity that his army foot soldiers have been ambushed. They went to clear a house, and there was a ton of people in there that put up one heck of a fight, as he said. Uh, one Iraqi soldier uh, for the U.S. troops is now dead. Several more are injured. A few more are injured. And, and they are both teams, the army foot soldiers and the Navy SEAL sniper team, are calling in heavy backup. And so one of of them makes in a call to where three Humvees load up and they're immediately headed to go rescue them and help them. Then the other one calls in an even higher level of backup and a tank is now en route to them. The tank shows up and points points itself at the building where the army soldiers said are the insurgents. The Navy SEALs are no longer communicating. The radios are breaking down. Jocko, the, the unit leader, doesn't know where the SEALs are. He knows where the Army soldiers are, but he doesn't know where his snipers are because they can't communicate anymore. And he said, something's not right. The soldiers were supposed to not even be in this neighborhood for three more hours. And I don't know where my snipers are, but I know they're close. And the army was fixing to call in an airstrike to obliterate the building that the insurgents were in. But Jocko knew something was wrong, and he took another senior leader with him. They opened the door to this building where the alleged insurgents were, and there were Navy SEALs standing there, scared for their lives, as three Humvees had been shooting 50 caliber rounds into their building, thinking that they were Iraqi soldiers. They didn't know who was shooting at them. In the early morning light, an Iraqi soldier walked into that building clearing it. They were in a neighborhood they weren't supposed to be in, didn't communicate that. The SEALs never communicated their location to the Army soldiers. So when he walked in, all he sees, the SEAL sees an Iraqi soldier with an AK-47 and kills him and shoots multiple more. They then return fire thinking that it was someone who's holed up in the house. Jocko said he wished he would have died in the field that day because he didn't want to answer for what was going to happen. That they had shot one of their Navy SEALs in the face. He survived. But that they killed one of the Iraqi soldiers working with them. A horrible situation. 
He said he reviewed, he, he's, in, he's getting chewed out by all his higher-ups. Their mission, their team is suspended. They said, prepare a, present, prepare a presentation to explain whose fault this is. So Jocko takes two, two days, and he goes through the thing. He said, there's so much blame to go around. It was hard to blame one person. He said, finally, right before the meeting started, I realized it was my fault. I was in charge of the soldiers. I was in charge of my SEAL team. I was in charge of everything. And because I didn't lead properly, we almost killed each other. So he stands before all this entire room full of commanding officers, and he takes complete blame for everything. Instead of getting fired, he was given praise and trust and respect because he owned the mistake. It was his fault, and he admitted it. He gained the trust of all of his soldiers and the other SEALs, and he gained the respect of his higher-ups that knew if anything goes wrong, he's going to take ownership, and he's going to accept responsibility and make it better. Thankfully, he didn't get fired, or else I think the book wouldn't be as good. But I tell that story because we're going to look at a text of Scripture today in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see in the book of Mark is that when we own our need for Jesus, we receive grace, not condemnation. When, when we own the fact that we've messed up and we admit that before the Lord, we receive life. And so if you would, turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. Now, I feel really far from you, and I'm going to take a risk and scoot this thing up. There we go. Nice. Still, the floor is uneven here, so sometimes it gets wobbly, and I can't handle that. Um, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When we own our need, we receive life, not condemnation. Okay? If you don't have a Bible, uh, the scriptures are going to be on the screen. If you would like a Bible, they're on the inside rows. That is our gift to you. We want you to know that we don't teach our opinion here. We teach God's Word as best and as faithfully as we can. So if at any point one of us preaching from this pulpit disagrees with God's Word, you go ahead and let us know that we're wrong and we'll admit that we are wrong. That being said, last week I did preach. I'm getting tired of making these apologies. I need to preach better. Uh, last week I mentioned a passage of Scripture, and I said, now this was uh, right before Jesus resurrected. What I meant to say it was right before Jesus ascended, okay? If it was before he resurrected, he'd still be dead and wouldn't have been able to say it, okay? So I, I made a, a little, I messed up on that when I said Jesus was still dead whenever he had already been risen uh, and was fixing to ascend into heaven. So my apologies on that. I wanted to make that clarification. Um, but we want to preach the word here. And so join us as we read. We're going to read the first section of this passage. So join me in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. Come lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. I'm going to pause right there. As, as we try and interpret, as, as we work towards Bible fluency, right? Our second core value. What does that mean? Well, I'm not fluent in Spanish, which means I wouldn't do very well in Mexico. Okay? So if you don't know how to read, understand, and speak the scriptures, you're not going to do very well following Jesus. So we want to get better and better and better and better. Okay? That's why we have older and wiser brothers and sisters in the faith. They're our interpreters. Okay? So if we don't know how to speak the language, we walk with them as they teach us how to communicate the Word of God, okay? Love that illustration. Just came into my head. I need to write that down somewhere. Um, as we try and grow in Bible fluency, there's an important thing. There's three huge key things to helping us interpret the Bible ready. You ready for the Bible better? Ready? Context, 
context in context. Okay, it's kind of a joke of that, but, but it really is. Who's in this passage of Scripture? What are they, a Jew? Are they a Gentile? Are they a male? Are they a female? Where are they located geographically? What time of history was it? And so as we ask these questions, it really helps us to understand a lot more. We're going to watch this play out. Guys, Lord, give us the strength to interpret your word well. Please help us in that, Father. Amen. But when we look at the context and we look, Mark is trying to tell us exactly. God's not a God of confusion. So when we come to the scriptures, we ought not be confused. Now, because we're sinners, sometimes we'll get confused. That's why we ask older, wiser brothers, sisters in the faith. But take, pay attention to what's happening. Jairus, so Jesus is coming, and again, he's in a crowd. These crowds are starting to get on my nerves because they're always pressing in on him. They're always wanting something from him, and none of them are turning in true faith and becoming disciples of Jesus. They're just trying to get what they can get out of him. So they're an irritating crowd, okay? Notice, when Jairus comes before him, what happens? He fell at his feet. Who did the text say that Jairus was? Jairus was the synagogue leader of that town. There was not a more highly connected religious influential person in town besides Jairus. He had all access to priests, to Levites, to the entire synagogue and to every Jew that went there regularly. But what happened? With all of his connections, with all of his status, with all of his influence, his little girl is dying. He couldn't turn to his priests. He couldn't turn to the resources. He couldn't turn to possibly a, a wealthy situation. He couldn't turn to his own wealth. It wouldn't stop. Nothing would stop his little girl from dying except for God. And so when he saw Jesus, it says he fell at his feet and begged. Now, as a Jewish man simply existing, but especially as a Jewish man who is the synagogue leader, one of the most influential religious people in that town, you would never bow to another man and beg him, let alone fall at his feet. There was a special, a special position of a slave that would be a foot washer. In a, in a general home, they would have someone that would wash your feet. Why? You walk on dirt roads all day, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and you tell me that those feet wouldn't stink. Animals walk there too. So it's dirt, it's poo, it's nasty, okay? You never fell at someone's feet. Again, we see Jesus do this. He, he washes his disciples' feet. And when he says, I'm going to wash your feet, they're like, no, you will not. Why? Because that was a lowly task of a house slave. The, note it, we're not talking about normal slavery, or the slavery that we know in our modern history. Uh, people had a lot of servants that worked in their house back then. Uh, we're not making a case for slavery in any way, shape, or form. Just saying it's, we're not relating it to the exact same thing as what's happened in our recent history. Okay? So there was the task of a servant, not the task of a Messiah, because feet were disgusting in Jewish culture. You did not touch them, you weren't around them. Yet the highly influential synagogue leader falls at his feet, humiliating himself. Why did he do that? Because when hope seems hopeless, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. That's what we see in this text. I don't have any other point. We got three people we're going to look at, and two of them make the exact same point. When hope seems hopeless, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. Jairus didn't care what anyone thought about him. Jairus wasn't worried about asking for help. Jairus wasn't embarrassed. Because he knew he had to do something to try and save his little girl. 
in Wyoming. I think it's funny. I've made the joke that uh, I asked a guy to help me, and he immediately said, oh, I'm so glad that you asked me to help you because I've needed your help, but I wasn't going to ask you. And so that's the Wyoming way. We don't need help from anybody. We'll die giving you the shirt off of our back, but we would, or we would give you the shirt off of our back, but we would rather die before we take your shirt. Here's the deal, church. You ready? God calls you to follow Christ before he calls you to follow the Wyoming way. We, we, we don't need this fake bravado that we don't need people. You want to know why? Because God has specifically designed life to force you to your knees. God has designed life that makes you lean on him for strength, that makes you lean on your church family for strength. And so if we want to just Wyoming up, we're not going to be great Christians when it comes to relying upon the strength of the Lord, not our own, and relying upon the strength that comes through the community of faith rather than our own. And so I think we can, as Wyomingites, we can take a really good example from Jairus right here because although he was, had status in town, everyone would think that he's a, a, a loser for doing what he's doing. Guys, when death, when unexpected death, when hope seems hopeless is on the horizon, we must have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus, not worrying what anyone would say about us because it doesn't change your eternity, what people think think about you, what changes your eternity is falling at the feet of Jesus. And there may be someone in this room right now that maybe it's not your little girl dying, but if you have not repented of your sins and asked God to forgive you and begin following Jesus, then it is your death that is imminent. And would you rather have everyone on earth think that you're important and hardworking and can provide for yourself, or would you rather have the faith to fall at the feet of Jesus because he's the only one that can give you life? As one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly. So he falls at his feet, humiliating. He begs. A man of that status doesn't beg, but he throws his pride out the window, and he goes to the one who can change the situation. Notice a couple of things you want to pay attention to as we move on to the next passage. He fell at his feet. And he said, my daughter is dying. Okay, pay attention to that because we've got context, context, context. And then anytime there's words being repeated throughout the text, the author, inspired by God, is making a point of that, okay? Can I just say that if you're in here tonight or you're watching this live stream or you're watching it recorded, if you've not thrown your pride out the window and fallen at the feet of Jesus and asked him to save you from your sins, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Even right now. We don't have to wait till the end of the service. We don't have to do that. If you know that when hope seems hopeless, you need to fall at the feet of Jesus. If you know that right now you've never turned from your sins, but yet you need to. You don't have to wait till the end of the service. Cry out to the Lord right now and say, Lord, I fall at your feet. Lord, I ask you to forgive my sins. I believe in you. You are God. I am yours. I will follow you forever. Say that, and the Lord will hear you, and he will save you now. Sermon's going to be a lot better if you get the Holy Spirit now. Oh, Lord, do that. Continue on with me. Now, we, we see a sandwich. We're, Jesus gets interrupted. And then we're going to come back to Jairus, okay? Verse 25. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. 
At once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Context, context, context. Who was it? What was their name? Was there a male or a female? Were they a Jew or a Gentile? So we have, an, we have Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, highly religious, influential person. His name is given to us. Now we have an unnamed, unclean woman. She was a Jew. Most likely she was a Jew. What was happening in her life? She was sick. She had a disease. In the first passage, we looked at death. When death is imminent, fall at the feet of Jesus. When, de when disease has taken over, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. And so this woman, we can assume what it was. For it's kind of complicated for someone to bleed for 12 years and not die. And so if you connect some dots, we can recognize what most likely was suffer, causing her to suffer. She spent 12 years. 12 years. It says, and she spent every ounce of money that she had. And it said she endured much from the doctors. She spent all she had for 12 years, and she didn't get better. In fact, it says on the contrary, she got worse. Mm. Can you imagine the brokenness? Poor, financially ruined from this disease that she didn't ask for. Now, as a Jew, there are ritually, there are ritual laws that she would have had to have abided by as a good Jew. And anyone wanting to be a good Jew and love the Lord would have abided by those rules. That rule is that while a woman is bleeding, if there is any discharge from anybody, male or female, they are unclean. They must take a bath and be unclean until the evening. Anything they touched, anything they sat on, any person they touched is unclean, must take a bath and be unclean until the evening. This woman, for 12 years, you thought of a one-month isolation quarantine and COVID was bad? 12 years! She can't touch anyone, she can't sit in anyone's house, and she can't go into the synagogue to worship. Twelve years, the disease has ruined her. How many of us would admit that at times in our lives, there was a sin disease in our life that made us unclean? that made us isolated, that brought us shame, that told us we weren't valuable, that kept us from true life. Oh, but when we fell at the feet of Jesus, come on church, when we fell at the feet of Jesus, we were made clean. And so all of us who have come to know Christ, we know that freedom. And if you're here tonight and you're still stuck in that sin disease, unclean, I can tell you he will make you clean today. But, but we see this girl, this woman, who for 12 years is sick. You want to know how you know that she knew she was unclean? Jairus ran up to her, or ran up to Jesus and said, come and help. What did the woman do? She came up behind him. She wasn't even going to touch him. She wanted to secretively touch his clothes and move on. Because everyone she brushed shoulders with on the way in, they're now unclean. If she touches the rabbi, the teacher, he's now unclean. 
So she touches his clothes. Oh, church, we don't have to have perfect faith. Let us have the faith that if we could just touch his clothes, if we could just reach out and just touch Jesus just a little bit, we can overcome that sin. We can be healed from it. We don't have to jump on his back and get a piggyback ride. We just got to get to Jesus. Even if we fall at the finish line and put a finger across, that's all we've got to do is every day find ourselves coming to Christ. She comes up to him, she touches him, and he says, who touched me? We've, as we've been walking through the book of Mark, I've, I've, told, I've asked us, where are the disciples? In this entire passage, this is the only time they're mentioned. And what do they do? They smart mouth Jesus again. Holy smokes, are they dumb. Who touched me? You see all these people, Jesus, and yet you ask me who touched you. Well done, disciples. That's the only mention you got in the whole passage. And you're back-talking the Savior. The book of Mark has made me realize just how silly I am. And if I was honest, how many times if my life was being written down in a book, I would be the dumb disciple. I don't think any of us can read the book of Mark and walk away with a puffed chest that we're a great disciple. There's times, there's times when we're like, I'm going to follow Jesus, I got this, and we're super bold. And then one thing happens and we're like, why would you say that, God? Why would you do that to me, God? And we question him. Ah, oh, man. What a dose of humility for all of us. But he says, who touched me? The woman realizing that now she's caught. She knew she was healed, though. What'd she do? She fell down at his feet. This unnamed, unclean woman just made the rabbi who was going to heal the most influential religious person's daughter unclean. The unnamed, unclean woman just interrupted the Savior's schedule and made him unclean. She falls down knowing she's healed, but what I believe expecting to be condemned because she has violated the law and she has now made the teacher unclean. Yet again, the unnamed woman who had no ability to heal herself has now has to fall in condemnation before the teacher. But what does he say? What does he say to her? Look over. Verse 34 daughter daughter imagine put yourself in the shoes for just a moment you're an unnamed unclean peasant woman in a culture that does not appreciate you you have now interrupted a rabbi's schedule to heal the most influential person in town's daughter and you just ruined that And you fall down, expecting to be a scathing rebuke. Oh, oh, the Lord is so good. But he says, daughter, she was supposed to receive condemnation, but she received adoption. You're mine. There's no other person in the book of Mark that gets called daughter. But the unnamed, unclean woman. Oh, in church, how many times has it been us that we, because of our sin, because of our uncleanness, have to fall at the feet of Jesus to confess, Oh, Lord, here I am again. I've done it again. And whenever we come to the Lord in confession of our sin, instead of receiving condemnation, we receive love. We receive grace. For the child of God, when we fall at his feet in shame and condemnation, he says, daughter, son, your faith has saved you. Maybe you're here tonight and you know that you're unclean. You know that you're a sinner. You've, you know that you've messed up. And maybe you're afraid, I, I, I don't want to, 
I don't know. I don't deserve this. I don't know what I'm going to do. Fall at the feet of Jesus. And instead of condemnation, brother, sister, or friend, you will receive adoption. Mm. Daughter, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Church, when hope seems hopeless, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. We pick back up with what's going on with Jairus in verse 35. He says, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and he entered the place where the child was. Then he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. And then he gave them strict orders that no one else should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus, this is something that we need to pay attention to right here. You ready? I can't remember how I worded it in the, in the point, but you're going to get what I mean. As disciples of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, we must show the same care and concern for people. Again, thinking about context, the little girl is dead. According to Jewish law, you can't touch a dead body. You're unclean. Jesus, when you're the fulfillment of that law, you can make the unclean clean. You're not bound by it. We're bound by the law. The law says what we can or cannot do. And then we fail and we sin. And so the law reveals our death. The law reveals our limitations. But when Jesus comes, he is the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And so when the little girl was dead, he's not allowed to touch her. But it says he took her by the hand. I say to you, little girl, get up. When hope seems hopeless, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. And then thinking about the context of this, his, his, the Savior's schedule is interrupted by this nasty, bloody, unclean, unnamed woman. He's in the process of going to the most important man in town's house to heal his daughter. How dare you interrupt my schedule? Mm. If the Savior can stop for an unclean, unnamed person, we ought to as well. I think about the times I've turned my eye or ignored the needy one in the room because it's gross or yucky or it's going to be high maintenance hard my day is too important I got more important things to do today for Jesus look if Jesus can interrupt his plans from the most influential religious person in the town one of them to stop for an unnamed unclean woman there's nothing we can't stop for Jesus is also going to a little girl to help her Children were not valued in this culture. They were the seen and not heard type mentality. And the girl at that. But Jesus adjusts his schedule to go help this father and this mother heal their little girl. 
And so as disciples of Jesus, we must have that same type of care and concern for people. If the church that represents Jesus Christ won't love the unlovable, then who will? Then who will? So he goes in, and he actually only takes Peter, James, and John. This is the first time that we see the beginning of the inner three. Throughout the rest of the book and throughout the rest of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus often does a lot of ministry privately with Peter, James, and John. We don't know why. We do know that Peter went on to pretty much be the leader of the church um, after Jesus dies and resurrected, resurrects. Um, but for whatever reason, he decided to take only three. And I want to make a quick application. In this church... Ephesians chapter 4 says that Jesus has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So my job as your elder is to raise up other elders and deacons. Right? We saw that when we went through 1 Timothy, that churches need elders and they need deacons. The elders do the spiritual leadership. The deacons make sure the physical things are done so spiritual can be done. Okay? So churches need elders and deacons who are just lead disciples. We're not better than our job is to equip the entire church to do the same ministry that we're doing. But Jesus just elects elders and deacons to lead in that, okay? That being said, if Jesus promised that he would gift those people to the church and that it's required for a good healthy design, then we don't, when someone Jesus calls, equips, and sets someone apart for that task, we want to notice it right away. Which means that every now and then you're going to see some people in the church getting to do types of ministry leadership that maybe not everyone else in the church is going to get to do. In no way, shape, or form is that ever favoritism. If you truly think that it is, come talk to us. If it is, we'll repent. But most likely it's not. What it is is us trying to discern who God is calling to help lead. And so every now and then in our church, there's going to be these moments where Peter, James, and John get to come do a part of a ministry that not the entire church gets invited to. Why? It's not because they're better. They just back talk to Jesus, okay? It's not, you were the only ones who got it right. No. Jesus brought them aside for some reason. And so every now and then in our church, we're going to be bringing aside people in the church, uh, discerning whether or not God's calling them into being an elder or a deacon, or maybe a ministry leader, or maybe some form of a teacher. We don't know. But, but please, church, as our church grows, as our leadership team grows, we know that Lance is coming on as associate pastor in a couple of months. Rebuke Satan when he tempts you to think that it's favoritism or you're getting left out. If you think that you're being overlooked, come talk. We're a family. Talk. But I just wanted to say that as, as our leadership grows and as we begin discipling people into those roles, let's just be careful that Satan doesn't tempt us into thinking it's favoritism and dividing our church over that, okay? We see in the scriptures, sometimes even Jesus brought specific people in uh, that the rest of the 12 didn't get to do. And so at times when you see that, it's not favoritism. It's trying to raise up more leaders so that we can plant more churches and reach more people for the kingdom of God, okay? That was just a side tangent uh, application that I wanted to make. But Jesus goes in, he grabs her by the hand, he says, little girl, get up. And so we've seen that when hope seems hopeless, have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus. I wish that we could say that it was happily ever after, but we have six more verses to read, and it ruins the whole story. Chapter 6, verse 1. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? Some of them were offended by him. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages, and he, he was going around the villages teaching. 
faithlessness leads to a fruitless life. If you won't put your faith in Jesus, at the end of your life, you will look back and go, I have wasted it. And maybe not before you die, but I promise you, when you bow the knee to the Almighty King, you will regret that you never put your faith in Him while you still have the chance. Faithlessness leads to a fruitless life. <laughs> they said, they heard him teach. Ah, this guy, who is he? I grew up with him. He's not the Messiah. I know all of his mother. I know his mother. I know his brothers. I know his sisters. He's not the Messiah because I want to be more important than I am. So I'm not going to put my faith in him. And it says that Jesus didn't do anything there. It says he was not able to. We need to be clear about that. God said, let there be light. And the world was here. There was no one believing in him. God does not need our faith to act. What happened here is that because they didn't have faith, he chose to give them no fruit. Because they didn't have faith, he didn't act miraculously in their life. They were not willing to fall at the feet of Jesus in faith, and so they did not receive life. That's what's happening. So faithlessness leads to a fruitless life. Now, this leaves me with two questions that we have to answer. Or really, um, yeah, two, two questions. We, we, I guess three. We already answered the one. Does, does God need my faith to save my life? No, absolutely not. What we're seeing here is because they had a lack of faith, he chose not to work. Okay? Two other questions. Can we be effective evangelists in our hometown? If Jesus couldn't, then my gosh, we should all move away from our hometowns. So can we be effective evangelists um, in our own hometown? And will my faith always save someone from death? Will my faith always save from disease? Let's answer those. Anthony Waters invited a guy to Beast Feast. Guess what? We baptized that guy last week. You've been in Wyoming your whole life, pretty much. This is pretty much your hometown. The Lord bless your evangelistic efforts. I remember I went to high school with a guy. Kind of knew him, kind of didn't. He knew me before I knew Jesus. He knew me after I knew Jesus. A few years into serving as one of the leader, one of the pastors of the church in Texas, uh, I get a message that they got married. They're wanting to come to our newly married class. I said, come on. Several months later, I'm on the back porch with this brother leading him to Christ, watching him repent of his sins. My hometown, his hometown, we knew each other, went to school together. He knew me before I knew Jesus. The evangelistic effort was still powerful because of God. Now, if you began to proclaim that you were the Messiah and could save them from their sins, I think then we would understand what Jesus is getting at. It says a prophet is not without it. One who speaks from God and him, the Messiah. I think that's where the rub came we see a lot of, I mean, the disciples that he had following him were from around where he was from. And so we can be effective evangelistically in our hometowns. So there's no excuse for us to say, well, you know, I would share the gospel more often, but, you know, I know, I know these guys, you know. I think about my brother Trent over here, my new brother, my new brother in the faith. He's been in Casper for 20 years, worked for the same company. Talk about everyone knowing him. Guess what? He just gave his life to Jesus. You want to know what people are saying? What's different about you? Yes, you can be effective with evangelism in your hometown. As long as we're not proclaiming that we're the Messiah that can save people from their sins, I think we're going to be just fine. Now, does our faith always save? Well... That's funny. Um, does our faith always save? Mark most likely got killed. The author of this book most likely died from persecution. Paul the Apostle, inspired by God, who wrote 13 books in the Bible, 
was, was, was murdered by the Romans. Peter, one of the three that got to go in on the special ministry visit, he got crucified upside down. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers to ever walk the face of the earth in the 1600s, had gout so bad that sometimes he couldn't even get out of his house. His wife had so much pain and disease, she was an invalid, effectively bedridden for most of her life. He died at 56. All throughout Christian history, we see people who have faith, but yet they still die unexpectedly. Or they're still plagued by disease. I, I didn't ask their permission to share this, but I'm going to. We have two sisters in our church that, man, their lives have been radically changed for the last couple of years. It's crazy how one slip on the ice can send you down several surgeries in a completely changed life. That's our sister, Pam Burris. We have another sister, Twyla Eli. Both of them have had serious life changes because of the pain they've been going through. Both of them are the wives of our leaders. Church, I, I'm sharing that because they've been on my heart lately, and we really need to be praying for them. But they've been praying with faith for years, and they're not seeing healing. So what do we do? What do we do when we have faith? We've fallen at the feet of Jesus, but the death still comes, the disease still takes over. What do we do? 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And you wish your pastor could get to somewhere in his Bible. Good night. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Verse 13 says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. we got to remember, if we're suffering as we follow the Savior, we're following a Savior that suffered. Jesus is not unaware of your pain. Paul the Apostle was beaten multiple times, received the 49 lashes, I think three or six times, which is when the Romans took a whip with all kinds of stuff and beat the living tar out of you. He got that multiple times. A destroyed back, scarred, stoned a couple times with huge rocks, kicked out of towns. What does he say about suffering? He says in verse 16, the Spirit Himself, so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Ready for this? Here we go. This is what Paul, the man who was beaten repetitively, almost stoned to death with huge rocks, he says, Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, church, with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Whatever suffering here is temporary, and I know it seems like it's going to never go away, but the scripture calls it light and momentary, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory to be revealed in heaven. Jesus does not promise us temporary relief, but he promises eternal life. And so we don't know if every time we come to Jesus, if our disease will be healed, if the unexpected death will be thwarted. But we must have faith to fall at the feet of Jesus, knowing that he has the power to heal when no one else does. But if he chooses not to, he's a savior that has suffered and he has a purpose. And when you get to heaven and stand before him, you will not say, why didn't you take away that pain. You'll say, oh my goodness, 
that was light and temporary. This is eternal. I'm going to ask Ashley to come. As we begin to sing the song again, Give Me Faith. Many of us in the church, either now or at times, have faced hard times when hope seems hopeless. Brother and sister fall at the feet of Jesus. If you're here tonight, and like Jairus, you know that none of your resources can help prevent what's coming, fall at the feet of Jesus. If you, like the unnamed, unclean woman, have tried all you can, but you can't replace your brokenness and you can't overcome your shame, fall at the feet of Jesus. If you're ready to turn from your sins and follow Jesus tonight, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I come to you today. I fall at your feet. I'm unclean. Make me clean. You are God and you can forgive. Forgive my sins. I will stand up. I will walk away from death. And I will follow you forever. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that, I want you to write it on the card that was in your seat and drop it in the offering box at the back. Let me pray for our church. Father, we love you. Lord, there will be times in our faith where family members in the church will be in that moment where hope seems hopeless. Lord, help us to fall at your feet together. Let us not Wyoming up, but let us Christ-like up. Let us be like Jesus. We rely upon you, and we rely upon one another, and then we get after it together. Lord, as we sing, I hope that you will hear our song as a prayer to give us faith. In the midst of everything, give us faith. Jesus.